Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Glenn McKay of the Northwest Territories Cultural Places Program in Yellowknife, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Otis. What are your main areas of interest in archaeology? Um, well, geographically, I'm, I'm very interested in the human history of Canada's north, and uh, especially the boreal forest region where I've done uh, most of my research. I'm, I'm really interested in collaborating with Indigenous elders through community-based projects to learn about their cultural landscapes. Um, as a cultural resource manager, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in understanding the impacts of contemporary climate change on archaeological sites in the north. And the current project that I'm working on uh, is called Shoot a Goat in a Cultural Landscape Project, and it's, it's through a research program called the Canadian Mountain Network, and that focuses on uh, understanding climate change-related impacts to specialized caribou hunting sites in the Mackenzie Mountains, so including uh, alpine ice patches and wooden caribou fences. Uh, one of the things that I've been really interested as well during my career is is using lithic raw material sourcing to, uh, to understand social interaction actions in in the pre-contact period um i think i think what i really love about archaeology is is that so many methods can be brought to bear on understanding uh human history from indigenous knowledge to ancient dna and dendrochronology uh remote sensing geochemistry and and so many other techniques that that can be integrated into uh telling stories about the past it's a very multidisciplinary field, archaeology. I think we, we take a lot of methods from a lot of other fields and and sort of work them into the problems that we're, we're investigating. Yes, definitely. As an archaeologist, where are some of the most interesting places that you've worked? Um, well, I've worked in the NWT for about 15 years, and uh, I've been able to travel quite broadly uh, in the territory on on uh, archaeology projects, and I've been been really fortunate to do community-based projects with 12 NWT communities um, through my career so far. Uh, everywhere I've gone, it's been really interesting to learn about the history and the land from, you know, the people that have lived there for, um, for many generations. Uh, just a, a few examples is um, of interesting places that I've worked are uh, on alpine ice patches. Um, in the Mackenzie Mountains, which uh, preserve this incredible record of of high alpine caribou hunting, where um, beautifully preserved hunting weapons are perfectly preserved by the ice, and now we're seeing them uh, starting to emerge uh, with global warming. Uh, another a really neat project that I've done recently is is to visit and uh, do a condition assessment of a three kilometer long uh, wood caribou fence on uh, Great Bear Lake, um, which is a really neat communal hunting feature that was used to to drive migratory tundra caribou herds towards kill sites. And then um, I've been, been uh, 
able to do uh, research on the Arctic coast as well, um, such as on Banks Island and in the Mackenzie Delta. And what's amazing about um, those sites, um, a- ancient uh, village sites, is that they're almost perfectly preserved in permafrost. And it's uh, sometimes it's like, you know, people left the house and it over time it collapsed, but everything is is perfectly um, preserved, locked in the the uh, the permafrost. Um, the first field project that I I did in the NWT was in in 2005 when I started at the Cultural Places Program. It was with a small community called uh, Samba K, where we worked with community elders and st- students to do some survey on Trout Lake, which is a large lake in the southwest corner of the Northwest Territories. Uh, the first site that I ever recorded. Um, which was shown to me by the elders there. And they, they took me to this this site and they said, this is an army base. And I was like, well, I, I didn't realize there'd be an army base in kind of on this, in this remote lake and in the Northwest Territories. And they, they took me around the site and um, there's a few cellar pits and a cast iron stove and a refuse area with discarded cans and batteries and a few, you know, a few hints like that. But, the elders describe it as, as an army base with several structures and a big communications tower and a bunch of soldiers working there. Um, and when I went back to the office, I started doing some research and it ter- turned out that there was a United States Army Air Force weather station uh, set up on the on Trout Lake in World War II. And it was there to monitor the weather for planes flying north um, during the building of the Alaska Highway and the canal pipeline, and uh, also planes were being ferried to Russia to assist in the war effort. So that experience uh, really opened my uh, eyes up to a piece of the history that I didn't really know know that much about. So it was, it was pretty neat. Interesting. When was the weather station closed? Uh, I'd have to go back and look, but I th- I believe either in, I think in 1945, towards the end of the war, of World War II. Oh. You mentioned that some of the sites were high altitude hunting sites. How high up were some of them? Um, the ice patches that we study are typically at around 5,000 feet in elevation. So they're up above tree line in the mountains in, in, in the Alpine tundra. For the benefit of our listeners, I'll just point out that 5,000 feet would be about 1,500 meters. Yeah. In addition to your research interests, you're also the territory archaeologist and manager of the Northwest Territories Cultural Places Program. What is the Cultural Places Program and what are your responsibilities there? So the, the Cultural Places Program, we're an agency of the government of the Northwest Territories. And uh, we're in the Culture and Heritage Division of the Department of Education, Culture and Employment. We're, we're located at the Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Centre in Yellowknife. Uh, which also holds the NWT archives and collections and exhibit spaces and and several other culture and heritage uh, programs. We have we have three main responsibilities in the cultural place program. So we have the archaeology program, and one of our main functions there is to regulate archaeological research in the Northwest Territories. So we're the agency that issues research permits to archaeologists that want to come to the NWT and, and conduct research. And as part of that, we 
um, review their deliverables and make sure that everything has been done well and that we're getting the data back that we need to, um, you know, keep on those on those sites and and to protect them. Um, another main part of the archaeology program is that we we work towards preservation and protection of archaeological sites. So a lot of the work that we do is reviewing development projects that are taking place in the NWT uh, and making recommendations so that those projects avoid impacts to archaeological sites. And we you know, recommend whether certain projects will require an archaeological impact assessment or not. Um, we, also, we also conduct community-based archaeological research projects to learn about, more about the NWT's history. Um, the second piece that we have is the geographical place names program. So we administer the process for the official recognition of, of new or replacement names for NWT geographical places like mountains, lakes, rivers, and so on. Um, a lot of this work involves official recogni recognition of indigenous uh, place names that may have been, um, you know, written over by, by uh, their names as Euro-Canadian uh, settlers moved into the area. We also have the Territorial Sites Program. Uh, and that, that is a more of a commemorative program that individuals, organizations can use to commemorate important historic places, people, and events in the Northwest Territories. What are some typical activities that you do at your job? Um, well... I, you know, we have a very, very short field season in the north. We, you know, we usually do field work between June and September. Um, and so I think, I think my typical day really is, is like, you know, like most, you know, like most other government employees in the office and in front of a computer. So uh, writing and reviewing reports and reviewing archaeology permit applications and applying for funding. Uh, working on management plans for archaeological sites, uh, answering public inquiries, um, those sorts of things. But one of the great things about working at the Heritage Centre is that um, we're we're right there with the archaeological collections. So um, occasionally we get to do some work analyzing collections and and uh, looking into uh, research questions around uh, the collections. Um, in the summertime, uh, things are a bit different because we're, we're typically uh, doing field work. So there's a lot of work to prepare and ship field equipment and contract helicopters and planes and travel and, and you know, implementing uh, field work programs as well. How many site collections are at the center? Um, we have our, the NWT site collections are, are sort of split between our center and the Canadian Museum of History in uh, in um, Gatineau. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure what the actual number is uh, for site collections in the uh, in our museum. We there's about 6,500 recorded archaeological sites in the Northwest Territories, and we have collections for um, you know maybe around half of those. Are most of those collections from recent fieldwork and the older collections are at the Canadian Museum of History? Yeah, so we we became the sole repository for NWT archaeological collections um, 
in 2001. So before that, some came to our museum and, and some went to CMH, but, you know, going back further from there, um, most of them would have gone to CMH. Can you tell us a bit about the timescale of archaeology in the Northwest Territories? How far back do we have evidence of people being in the region? Um, well, in, in, uh, in terms of physical evidence, uh, the oldest sites that we, we have recorded in the Northwest Territories are about 8,000 years old. But um, we think it's likely that the human history of this region is, is quite a bit older and that um, archaeologists will one day uh, find evidence of older occupations um, as more survey work is done. Um, I think uh, in the Mackenzie River Valley retreat of the Laurentide Ice Sheet, uh, in concert with retreat of mountain glaciers in the Mackenzie Mountains, uh, created a deglaciated area within the Mackenzie Valley, probably between fourteen and thirteen thousand calendar years ago, and. We have paleontological evidence um, that steppe bison were in the northern part of this region about 13,500 calendar years ago. So we think that that Mackenzie Valley area would have been able to support human populations in that kind of 13,000 to 13,500 type of um, calendar years ago. And we, we don't know if they would have come from the, from the west, from Yukon and Alaska, where we know there were people, um, there's archaeological evidence of people living there, you know, in in and around 14,000 years ago, or, or if people may have been starting to migrate uh, north from, from the lower, uh, from the United States area um, at that time. So uh, we think, we think that uh, there is evidence yet to be found of older occupations um, in that Mackenzie Valley area. Um, so and we're looking to the east of the Mackenzie Valley. We have kind of this vast area that we call the Taiga Shield. And, and we start seeing occupation there about 7,500 to 8,000 years ago. So as the Laurentide Ice Sheet retreated uh, eastward, um, we believe um, people started to move into this area as as caribou herds became established on the deglaciated terrain. And it um, caribou provided, you know, a really abundant resource for, for people in that area. And then uh, in the Canadian Arctic, Arctic, we see humans starting to move into that area in the neighborhood of about 5,000 years ago. And in, a, in an event that we call the early Paleo-Inuit migration. So um, it's people coming from the West, from Alaska, over time, moving through the Canadian Ar Arctic and settling throughout that area, um, including the high Arctic islands, and then also as far east as Greenland. To give our listeners a bit of perspective, maybe it's good to point out that the northern part of Canada has a much, much lower population density than the south, and even more so if we compare it to most of the USA. You said that there are about 6,500 documented sites in the Northwest Territories. What percentage of all of the sites in the NWT do you think that this probably represents? Um, well, we have we have uh, six thousand five hundred sites recorded, and we typically say that that's less than one percent of what's out there on the land, and and, and potentially it's much less than one percent. 
Um, I think there's, there's, you know, it's hard to predict, but I think we've only the 6,500 sites that we have is only literally scratched the surface of, of what's, of what's out there. So it's quite possible that these earlier sites are just there. And because there's not that many people in the area, there's much less chance that they would have been found. But at any time, we could find a completely new site that could rewrite the history of the region. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. We've had, uh, speaking relatively to the southern provinces, we've had... Um, very, very little development in the north. And, and like you say, we don't have any agriculture really to speak of. So um, consequently, there's been been very little archaeology done that's related to development and, and compared to other places as well, very little academic research. So I think there's still many more amazing discoveries to be made in the Northwest Territories that will continue to redefine um, how we think about the human history of the area. I guess logistic plays a, a part in that as well, in that much further to the south, there's a lot more roads. It's probably a lot easier to get to places, whereas in a lot of the territories, the only way in maybe to fly in or possibly to take a boat in, but there are very large distances between cities. Yes, yeah. As someone who studied the history of the Arctic, specifically in North America, over long periods of time, what evidence do you see of or against global warming? I think the you know the paleoclimate proxies like ice cores and lake sediments and tree rings and those sorts of things that scientists used to look at climate change, they, they definitely show that there have been some significant changes in the climate of Canada's north over the past few thousand years. And it's and it's likely that these changes, you know, played at least some role or amongst other factors in the course of human history in the region. Um, I think these paleoclimate proxies in concert with um, the more recent instrumental record also really clearly show us that the rapid and abrupt warming seen over the industrial area is unprecedented within that record. Um, ultimately, it's clear that this is due to to human caused warming, and and on top of that, um, Canada's north seems to be warming at a rate about of about three times the global average. So we're really starting to see the effects of of global warming, um, especially in in things like landscape disturbances caused by by thawing permafrost we're seeing a, a pretty rapid acceleration in in that type of disturbance in the northern parts of the territory and if, if I can use an example from our own work um, I'd mentioned earlier uh, high alpine ice patches um, we we've seen ice patches literally disappear over uh, some ice patches literally disappear over the last decade or so um, I can tell you about one example where we had um, cored through the ice and were able to date organics in the ice patch and we were able to show that that ice patch had been at least part of that ice patch had been there for 3,000 years and we saw it melt completely out um, between 2009 and 2011 and, it's, and um, 
and you know completely completely melted away that that three thousand year old ice. So I think the warming that we're seeing in the north is is uh, um, as I suggested before is is really unprecedented. I've sometimes heard people say that it won't be so bad when for this global warming because then we can just move up there and it'll be a rather nice climate. But I think that what a lot of people are overlooking is that the environment hasn't had the forested and type of area that you, you might see to the south. It hasn't had that. And so if you thaw out the ground and just warm it up, a lot of it's just going to wash away and you'll probably end up with a very rocky area. So it's not going, even if it warms up, it's not going to be like a tropical rainforest. It'll be something else. It won't, because in, in such a short time, it won't be enough for the environment to create an, a whole new set of vegetation that's adapted to that. And you'll probably just end up getting a lot of washed out ground. Uh, so that, but I think because people don't see it, they're not, they don't quickly realize what happens when the permafrost melts. Yeah, it can be, be um, uh, cause quite dramatic landscape disturbances that are called uh, thaw slumps that where ice rich permafrost melts and causes these, these uh, quite dramatic slope failures. And that's that, that activity seems to be increasing um, quite uh, rapidly in, in, uh, in the north. How is global warming affecting archaeological sites in general? In well, Belgium? we, this is something that's, that's really, uh, that we're really working, starting to work hard on, um, because we're seeing really potential for really dramatic impacts to, to archaeological sites. And, and we're, we have kind of four areas that we're, trying to investigate so um, coastal erosion um, so the Beaufort sea coast um, is experiencing erosion rates of you know I think rates of one meter a year are pretty commonplace in that area and there's, there's examples where areas are eroding at more than 10 meters a year in some places um, this is all forecasted to accelerate with climate changes to longer sea ice free seasons and global sea levels rise and and uh, there's you know there's evidence that we'll experience we're already experiencing more frequent and severe summer and false fall um, storms that really kind of batter that Arctic coast um, and then you know most most Arctic archaeological sites are located right on the coast um, because Arctic peoples uh, made such extensive use of marine resource, marine resources and so these sites are at, at really grave risk from these this quite rapid coastal erosion that we can only really expect will accelerate um, so that that's a key a key focus that we're trying to create some management planning around and and the the the, the coast of the NWT is is thousands of kilometers long and you know, not you know, only small portions have even been surveyed. So it's a really massive problem to uh, start thinking about where to prioritize limited resources in terms of um, rescuing the archaeological information from the most important sites. Um, another area that 
that we've started thinking about as well is is forest fires. Um, and you know, forest fires have always been part of um, boreal forest ecosystems in the north, but they're really expected to become more intense and severe with with climate change. And um, back in 2014, we had you know just a real anomalous bad forest fire season, and we really started thinking about um, we we called that, that whole summer in Yellowknife was called the summer of smoke because the the uh, the the sky was just constantly blotted out by by um, so around then we started thinking about um, effects of forest fires on wood surface archaeological features and we really focused in on um, these these caribou fences these really important communal hunting sites and so we have a a project there where we're trying to um, get out to these fences that, you know, are potentially at risk of, of burning down. And, um, we're using, um, drones to create uh, high resolution, um, maps of, uh, of, of these and photos of these, um, these fences and their surrounding landscape so we can preserve, uh, kind of a detailed record of what, what they look like just in case that they're, you know, as they're getting become an increasing risk of, a forest fire, um, uh, thawing permafrost as well. So I think we're starting to see, we have, you know, all these sites in the Arctic that are, that have been encased in permafrost for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. And we're starting to see, um, deeper active layers. So that, that area of the permafrost or the, the soil that melts, um, or thaws in the, uh, during the summer, these active layers are deepening. So um, there's, there's becomes a risk that all of these artifacts that have been and faunal materials that have been perfectly preserved in the permafrost are going to be more and more exposed to um, microbial activity and start breaking down and, and uh, they'll lose their, their uh, preservation context. Um, and then, like I was mentioning before, there's, this more sinister effect of thawing of ice-rich permafrost, which is creating these huge landscape disturbances. Um, and these, these tend to happen along rivers and lakes and, you know, the exact same places that that people would have set up camps in the past. And and so we, we, uh, we feel that it's very likely that some of these big landscape disturbances are probably impacting archaeological sites along lake shores and, and rivers. And then um, the other thing I, that I mentioned before are these melting alpine ice patches um, where, again, artifacts have been, these beautiful hunting artifacts have been perfectly preserved in the, uh, in the ice. Um, but now as these, these, uh, as these ice patches are, are melting quite rapidly, um, the artifacts are being exposed. And if, if we, we can't be there to pick them up and get them into conservation, uh, they'll, they'll degrade very very quickly and we'll lose them. So those, those are sort of four areas that we're, we're thinking, you know, at in terms of, of climate change impacts on, on archeological sites. Have you seen the documentary children of the dig? I think it was produced last year. I'm, I don't remember exactly when it takes place in Alaska and they're documenting a, an excavation that was along one of the coasts and they show, I think over a period of, 
every even four or five years, the coastline is just moving back and back and back. And part of this, I think it was a turf house. Right. Part of it's already eroded in and they're just excavating as much as they can because each year a little bit more falls into the water. Yeah. They, they'd made a small museum in the, one of the local villages and a lot of the local people, they also came out, they took part in it and there was lectures afterwards. And... Right. I haven't seen that, but I'll, I'll take a look for it. I think I think Alaska shares the same problem that we have. They're experiencing um, rapid erosion as well. You mentioned a bit already about ice patches. In archaeological research, what are these and why are they important sources of information? Um, so, well, ice patches are permanent areas of ice that are found found in the high alpine environment. And they're, they're like glaciers in a way that they they accumulate through winter precipitation and they they form over time as wind blow snow wind blown snow builds up on the leeward slopes of mountains um, they tend to form on north facing slopes where the snow drifts are most protected from direct sunlight so so basically more builds up in the winter than melts away in the summer and they um, gradually grow into these these permanent ice patches and the neat thing about them is that caribou seek them out on hot summer days to cool off and escape the hordes of biting insects that are are found on the alpine tundra. And now that these ice patches are melting with global warming, they're when you when you see them, they're ringed by this thick black band of caribou dung that's accumul- accumulated over thousands of years in some cases, oh. <laughs> um, as caribou have used them for this relief habitat every summer. And it turns out that that humans recognize these ice patches as a, a predictable place to find caribou in the summer. So they they started to hunt on them. And when they lost their arrows or their throwing darts and, and other other implements, they became perfectly, you know, encased in the ice and they've been encased in the ice until quite recently and, and now these ice patches are starting to melt their their um they're melting out and um, we're able to, to go to them and, and collect them. Uh, some of them are, you know, absolutely amazing, um, you know, complete arrows with a stone point and a birch shaft and feathers and sinew still tying the point onto the, to the, uh, to the shaft um, throwing darts that are, you know, 2,500 years old or even older um, that still have sinew and their wood components and feathers. It's, it's really, uh, really quite amazing. And it's, it's really provided this window into how people made their, their hunting implements. Um, and also this, uh, this kind of new record of, of, uh, high Alpine, um, hunting in subarctic mountains, which is, is something that we, we didn't, uh, we didn't have before. How many of these ice patches are there? Well, it's in, we have about we have about ten ice patch archaeological sites in the Northwest Territories, and um, there are many more in the Yukon. And uh, the ice patch sort of phenomenon in North America started in the in the Yukon, um, and then since then more sites have been found in NWT in Alaska, and also um, in in Colorado and 
in the mountains of Colorado as well in the in the Yellowstone region they've found the same phenomenon of people hunting I think in that case probably um, mountain sheep and potentially bison on these these ice patches and then um, and then it's also uh, um, there's also ice patches in Europe um, in the mountains in Switzerland and Norway and and just recently I think ice patch archaeology is discovered in Mongolia as well. How big are they typically? Some of the biggest ones in the NWT can be the biggest ice patch is about 500 meters long. And in, when we cored it in 2007, it was three and a half meters uh, thick. And the one thing that I also wanted to mention is that they're, they're, they're not big enough to move like a glacier. So they, they, they really form in the, the same way that a glacier does through winter precipitation, but they don't get big enough to move. So um, they're very static feature. So they don't, they're not moving and grinding up things and grinding up rock and, and destroying artifacts. They're, they're very static. So the artifacts just get, you know, just encased in this ice and, and, and perfectly preserved. Um, so like I said, that, that one ice patch was three and a half meters thick. Um, in 2007, we cored it. In 2019, we cored it um, again. There's only a very small remnant left, and there was only there's less than a meter of ice there now. So, it kind of speaks to how rapidly these are are melting over this period of about um, 12 years. Most of the ice mass of the ice patch has disappeared. And you figure that there's probably more of them that haven't been documented yet. I believe so, and we're we're doing some remote sensing based work to see if there's other targets that we may, in the mountains that we have haven't visited yet. And so these are also melting out and leaving artifacts, oftentimes organic artifacts on the surface. Yeah, exposed to the elements. Yes. Yeah, I think if you had a piece of wood that had been frozen for a few thousand years, it comes to the surface when it thaws out. How long do you think that piece of wood would survive before it would disintegrate? Um, I think it it's best to get it as soon as it melts out and get it into conservation. But I think we found some pieces that that seem to have been been melted out a while ago. You know, maybe several years, but I think, I think you know, maybe you might find degraded pieces, you know, five or ten years after they melt out. But I think they'd very rapidly disintegrate, and then with high winds in the mountains, um, probably you know, start you know potentially blow away as they they kind of dry up and and disintegrate. I think a good comparison is when you freeze meat, and when you take it out and thaw it out it'll go bad faster than if you had a fresh piece of meat from the butchers. And the reason it's doing is this is because all the cells in it, they're all filled with the liquid. And when it freezes, the ice expands and the ice crystals rip them apart. So as long as they all stay frozen, it stays in the same shape. But once you thaw it out, all those things go back to liquid, all those shattered cell structure in it is just, just waiting to fall apart. There's no structure left. And right. even a little bit of disturbance makes it fall apart. Yeah. What do you think are unique logistical aspects of doing archaeology in the Arctic, particularly in the Northwest Territories? 
Um, I think I think like we discussed a bit before is is just is gaining access to research sites. So the NWT is something like about well about one one point three five million square kilometers. We only have a population of around forty thousand people in that in that huge area. So there's there's only a few larger communities, and our our road network is 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 very limited. So in most areas, and and especially in the Arctic, are very remote. So um, it's very expensive to get into the field. And field work, um, especially in the Arctic, Arctic can be heavily impacted by weather delays. So um, with, with a season that's quite short in the first place, uh, it's often difficult to get enough time in the field to meet all, all objectives. And just, just by way of example, um, I participated in a, a project in the Mackenzie Delta in uh, 2007. And, and it was the, it was the most logistically complex project I've, I've ever been involved in. We had to ship all our gear to Inuvik and then uh, charter a plane to, take all of that gear up to this remote, uh, this old oil and gas uh, landing strip. And then we had to have a helicopter come in and meet the plane. And we had to sling, do six or seven sling loads from that plane all the way out to the site. And then we had to do all, the, all of that coming back as well. So it was, um, it's just uh, the logistics can get really crazy and, uh, and very expensive as well when you start talking about helicopters and and fuel and air, air charters and that sort of thing. Um, we do have um, Natural Resources Canada with the federal government has an amazing program called the Polar Continental Shelf Program that does provide um, funding and support for uh, logistics for Arctic research. Arctic research. So um, northern archaeologists have have um, have uh, been able to use that program quite extensively to help help with these logistics to getting for getting into the field so transportation is the one of the biggest challenges yeah i think transportation and i think weather delays and and those sorts of things how do you adapt to that is are there other methods that you can use or is it just a matter of waiting things out i think it's a it's a matter of waiting things out but i think there's like one of the things that we've done with uh, with some of these caribou fences that we're studying is use um, use drones to create these really high resolution ortho photos of the areas we're studying. So if we can't get get to everything on while we're in the field, we have these really high resolution products that we can go back to and um, kind of explore sites in that way. So I think these types of, of technologies can really help us out as well, where we can, um, when in the field, try and capture a larger area with high resolution photos taken from a drone that will, will um, help us uh, capture some of the information from the site. Are you using fixed wing drones or helicopter drones? We've used both. Yeah, we've used um, an EB fixed wing drone and, uh, and some multi-copters as well. And we have uh, one of our colleagues in, in the government um, in our Center for Geomatics uh, helps us out with uh, drone applications. I think that in mining and other resource type research, they use the fixed wings a lot to try to create 3D models of the land. 
Yeah. Through photogrammetry. I think because they have a lot larger range and there's not the fuel consumption, I think with the helicopter drones, I think you'd be lucky to get an hour and a half out of some of the most efficient ones. Whereas yeah. I think a fixed wing, and I think even the, the fixed wing can even run on gasoline. Uh, whereas the helicopters, I think they're all, uh, I think they're all electrical. Yeah, where the one that we use is a battery-operated fixed wing, but it it has quite a um, quite a good range. But we do have to stay um, within visual line of sight of it. But we can get um, several hundred meters um, away from us, so it can it can capture uh, quite a large area in 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 uh, a short time. Do they program it to fly a certain flight path, or there's a user who's controlling it the whole time? It is programmed to fly. It has uh, internal GPS, so it's programmed to fly a flight path, and then the u- the user does have a remote control in case something goes wrong and they have to bring it down. Um, but it's it's mostly automated. But that seems like quite a useful tool then for, I think, for mapping any type of large area. I think, like with the caribou fence example, um, I think it would have taken us, like I estimate it would have taken us a week because this thing is about almost a kilometer long to to map it with a total station and take enough reference photos of it to get a, a good idea of what it was what it was like. But with the drone, because it, it has an onboard GPS so it, and we um, were able to use a differential GPS with ground to create ground control points so that we could get it perfectly um, geo-referenced. And then it takes, uh, you know, it takes a photo every second. So it took us two 13-minute flights to get, um, you know, a perfectly geo-referenced, very high-resolution ortho photo of the feature instead of, um, you know, mapping it traditionally with, with say, a total station and, and photos and, and, you know, notes and that, that kind of thing, it would have, it would have taken quite a bit longer. So it is really a real time saver. Were you taking in photos from enough angles that you could do 3d reconstructions from the photogrammetry? Yeah. The, there's so much overlap between the, the photos that you can, we were able to create a, a 3d fly through of the fence feature itself, but also the surrounding landscape. So you can really see, um, in great detail, how the fence sits relative to the to the landscape it's in. Um, so it's really really a valuable tool, I, th- I think, for um, interpret- interpreting how the fence worked as well relative to its its landscape setting. So you've already mentioned that some of the artifacts are very well preserved because they've been frozen in the ice or in the permafrost. This is something that it's almost unheard of in, in most of the world to, to find organic materials preserved. Like you're often very lucky to find small pieces of wood or, or leather. I think this is a much more common thing to find in the Arctic. Are there any other advantages you see of doing archaeology there? Well, I think the, the permafrost, you have such excellent preservation, um, but, but it is it is difficult to excavate and and you're asking about you know how the methods kind of differ in, in some cases you need to um, excavate a little bit and then let the sun um, melt it and then excavate a bit more and let the sun melt it it's it can be a lengthy process to 
to um, to excavate these sites, but it, it's it's uh, it's worth it because um, even the most fragile materials like bent wood bowls and leather and um, wood implements and and uh, and you know faunal remains like even even fish you know very fragile fish bones are all are all perfectly preserved. Um, so you know one of the so there, there's those methodological methodological challenges. Um, other challenges are that you really need to have a conservator in the field with you because um, all, all these materials are fragile. They're coming out from frozen to being not frozen, and they need to be um, they need to have some in the field to make sure that they can be safely uh, removed to uh, to a to a museum or collections facility. And, and the other thing that's very interesting with these permafrost sites and especially cared, um, compared to subarctic sites where, you know, you just get, sometimes you just get little lithic scatters, but these, you know, if you excavate one house feature in the Arctic, you get this incredible volume of material that you have to get out of the field, out of this very remote um, field setting. And you have to, you know, get it home safely and catalog it and clean it and, and, um, label it but you have especially fallen remains um they're so well preserved and there's so many of them that have accumulated in these these houses that you just have boxes and boxes and boxes of mm-hmm. of material um coming out of the field but um yeah permafrost is is definitely a real a fantastic advantage of the the arctic record but it does come with with these um extra challenges as well how does CRM work in the Arctic or in the Northwest Territory specifically differ compared to CRM work in the South in the provinces? Um, I, th- I, you know, I think this remoteness factor that we've we've discussed is is a big difference. So um, CRM work is, I think, more often than not helicopter based. Um, so perhaps uh, logistically more com- complex than in the South, where you have. Um, a more a bigger road network where you can get more places um, by vehicle. I think I think relatively speaking, um, there's a lot less archaeological baseline data in the north. Like we we spoke before, how how there's been you know relatively little development and and not a lot of academic research. So we don't have um, there's you know there's really huge areas of the NWT where not a single archaeological site has ever been recorded. So um, where, where you do have a lot of archaeological sites in other places, you have, um, archaeologists that are doing CRM work can, can look at that and they have a lot of clues of, you know, what landforms they want to look at, um, that might have high potential for archaeological sites. But in a lot of places in the North, especially in areas that are sort of being newly developed, we just, we don't have that baseline data. So it's, it's often starting from scratch. And I think, um, also part of that, you know, compared to places like Alberta, where they have um, so much LIDAR coverage of their province, um, sometimes we also lack kind of the high resolution imagery and um, resolution digital elevation models that really would help an archaeologist going into the field to understand target areas that they might want to look for archaeological sites. And th- this is getting better, actually, because we do have a new product um called the uh, Arctic DEM that's been produced by uh, NASA and, and other partners, which gives us 
about a two meter resolution DEM. Wow, that's really good. So that's really helped us a lot to, to try and think about um, potential. But I, I think I think those some of those are some of the main differences. That's two meter per pixel. Um, I think it it basically you can see sort of two meter changes in elevation. So I guess that yeah, I guess that would be correct that it would be two meters per pixel. Oh, that, that's really good. I know that the ones that are publicly available for the United States are 30 meters per pixel. And that's what's publicly available. I would imagine that they also have other material that's for specific areas that's better than that. Right. And are these models being produced in the same way for the shuttle radar or how are they being produced? I think my understanding is that they're being produced with high resolution satellite imagery. Um, so they're taking oh, okay. images in stereo, I guess, and they can um, use the computer to uh, to crunch uh, all of this data into uh, into a pretty okay. pretty EM for the north. Well, that's pretty good then. That's enough that you could very clearly see hills and even yeah. um, river streams. They should be able to show up on something of that good of detail. Yeah, you can see river terraces really nicely, and and um, eskers and and you know ridge tops and that type of thing quite well. Are they trying to use some of the models that are used in other regions to help predict high probability areas? Um, we haven't we haven't seen too many models like actual predictive models. That's something that we that we want to try and produce, and I think. I think often in many cases, there's just um, too little archaeological baseline data to test them. But archaeology uh, consultants use it um, really extensively for when they have a local study area that they're looking at and they can do, um, do uh, you know, look through the imagery and kind of do, use their expert judgment to pick out target areas. So it, it, is, it is aiding in CRM work quite a bit. I guess one of the other differences in the Yukon and in the Northwest Territories would be that a lot of the CRM companies are not based there. I would guess a lot of them come from northern BC. Um, well, yeah, we get we get archaeologists from BC. We get a lot of archaeologists from Calgary and Edmonton coming up, and some from Saskatoon. And, and that that's right. We actually. Um, in the NWT, we don't have a re resident consulting archaeologist. So most of the the CRM work is being done by companies, by CRM companies, or is it often being done by individuals? It's been being done by CRM companies. And the vast majority are coming from northern BC or from the prairies? Yes. Are there some that are specializing in the Northwest Territories in the Yukon, or is it a mixed bag? Um, I think it. I think it's mixed, but mostly we require um, archaeologists uh, working at permit holders in the Northwest Territories to have um, boreal forest experience. So most archaeologists that are working here have um, experience in the northern provinces or or, or the territories. Do you not get people from Ontario, though? Or? Uh, very rarely. It's mostly mostly from Western Canada. Do you think that's because of differences in legislation or just 
because it's further away. Um, I think I think more that it's just just further away. People are tending to specialize in a geographic area. Yeah. One thing I've noticed with the provinces as well is that the CRM companies tend to be working within a specific province or perhaps two provinces next to each other. You might get ones working in northern BC and Alberta, or you might get ones that are doing Alberta to Manitoba. But you're, you're, it's very unlikely that you'll get, other than some of the big like environmental or construction companies that may be doing like Golder, for example, that might be doing national or international. You're not getting a lot of CRM companies that are doing very wide areas. They seem to be very localized or at least regionalized. Right. And I thought with low population in the territories, there'd be less chance of someone specializing specifically there. But most of them have a boreal forest background. Yes. That's their the commonality. Yeah. What advice would you give to people in high school or who are starting university who are thinking about becoming archaeologists? Um, well, I, I'd always say uh, try and get as much fieldwork experience as possible throughout your university career. And, and um, I think it's great to volunteer in the lab and get experiencing analyzing artifacts and, and faunal assemblages. Um, and, and one thing that I've, I've really been advising students is to try and obtain GIS skills over the course of their training because it's such an important skill for working with archaeological data and analyzing archaeological poten- potential. And, and I think especially in the, the CRM industry and being able to, um, you know, get a look at an area that needs to be analyzed or surveyed and being able to pick out target areas, I think um, GIS is is um invaluable for that um one of the things that i think could be in demand in the near future is is archaeological conservation and i think we're hopefully you know we're ramping up across the country to address this this major coastal erosion program and and, you know like i said before as as we start to mitigate these sites, if we have to do data collection at these sites that are eroding, it's going to create just massive volumes of, of artifacts and faunal materials and organics that are going to need um, conservation attention. Um, so I think, I think if that, you know, if that, that work starts to ramp up, we're going to really need archeological conservators to deal with that material. So I think that's an area of, of specialization that may may be in demand as as some of these mitigation efforts get underway. It's quite useful for people who haven't they haven't yet figured out exactly what they want to do, but they're looking for something where there may be more job openings in the in the coming years. Right. How can people who are not students but interested in archaeology get involved and learn more about the past of the Northwest Territories or get involved in archaeology itself? I think a great place to start uh, learning about archaeology and NWT is through um, our online exhibits at the Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Centre. So we have um, several uh, exhibits on our, our website and there's there's a lot of great content there on um, 
some of the archaeological projects that we've done over the years, including the Ice Patch Project and some of the permafrost uh, sites that have been excavated in the Arctic. And um, they're really uh, they're quite quite informative and quite fun to go through. So I'd I'd recommend that people um, check those out to get a um, kind of a, an idea of um, of uh, the archaeology in the area and and um, those, those those things I think could um, lead to other sources that they might find interesting as well. I'll put some links in the episode notes so that people can follow those and check out get some more information on the subject. Okay, great. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your research and your job and about archaeology in the Canadian Arctic in general. It's definitely an interesting area for new research. I think that it's very interesting to hear about how archaeology varies in different environments and what work is going on in different parts of the world. I think that for early career archaeologists in particular, this will be interesting to hear about the different types of careers that archaeologists could enter into. Thanks very much for having me, Otis. Have a nice day. You've been listening to the ArcheoCafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for ArcheoCafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Remember, if you find that you often dwell on the past, look on the bright side. At least you can list it as an occupational skill.